Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In honor of Black History Month, which is February, I thought we'd take a look at the history of African Americans in surgery. Although we have covered some African Americans already, including Vivian Thomas in episode 32 and Ben Carson in episode 5, I thought we'd take a step further back and look at some pioneers. Given the history of the United States, we have to go back to the Civil War and just before it to meet some of the brave surgeons that overcame institutional racism to make their contributions to surgery. There are some great stories to cover, so let's get to it in this episode of Legends of Surgery. We'll begin by covering the very first African Americans to achieve medical training. The first to hold a medical degree was Dr. James McCune Smith, who graduated at the top of his class at the University of Glasgow in Scotland in 1837. He had applied to Columbia University and Geneva Medical College in New York, but was denied admission due to racial discrimination. The first African American to receive a medical degree in America was David Jones Peck, who graduated from Rush Medical College in Chicago in 1847. But the bulk of our story today starts with the American Civil War, fought between the Union forces and the secessionists from 11 southern states, which lasted from 1861 to 1865. Now note this conflict cost 625,000 lives, almost as many soldiers as died in all the other wars that Americans have participated in combined. Now during the conflict, many African Americans joined the Union Army, and a few of these men were physicians. It is estimated that there were three commissioned officers and nine contract surgeons. One of the most famous was Dr. Alexander T. Augusta. Dr. Augusta was born in 1825 in Norfolk, Virginia. He worked as a barber, secretly learning to read, as it was illegal for free black people to read by Virginia law, and attempted to get medical training in the U.S. unsuccessfully before moving to Toronto, Canada to attend Trinity College at the University of Toronto, graduating in 1856. Now, he stayed in Toronto, working at the Toronto City Hospital and later as director of an industrial school, as well as starting a private practice, before enlisting in the Union Army by writing directly to President Lincoln and offering his services as a surgeon. Now, Dr. Augusta received a commission on April 14, 1863 as a major. His first appointment was as head surgeon of the 7th U.S. Colored Infantry. These were regiments comprised primarily of African-American soldiers, numbering more than 178,000 by the end of the war and making up 10% of the Union Army forces. Dr. Augusta's salary was lower than that of white privates, but he wrote to the Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson and was given the appropriate pay. Of course, this was not the only indignity he suffered. While in uniform in Baltimore, he was attacked by a white mob, and his white assistants, who were also surgeons, complained about being subordinate to a black officer. He was then moved to become the first African-American hospital administrator in U.S. history, taking command of the Freedmen's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and we'll come back to that in a minute. In 1865, Dr. Augusta was promoted to lieutenant colonel, making him the highest-ranked black officer in the Union Army. Following the war, Dr. Augusta became one of the original faculty members of the newly formed medical college at Howard University in Washington, D.C., which had Freedmen's as its teaching hospital. He died in 1890, and as a final honor became the first black officer to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. FYI, Arlington is a military cemetery, the only one to hold servicemen from every war in U.S. history. And interestingly, the site of the cemetery is located on the confiscated estate of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Alright, let's get back to Freedman's Hospital. To understand its history, we have to review a bit of Civil War history. In 1861 and 1862, the U.S. Congress passed the Confiscation Acts, which authorized the confiscation of any Confederate property by Union forces, which included slaves. During this time, newly freed slaves were called contraband, 
And as the Union states were flooded with these men, women, and children, so-called contraband camps were set up to provide housing and basic services. Now, one of the largest of these was near Washington, D.C., at the former site of a military barracks called Camp Barker, in honor of Captain Barker, who commanded a company of soldiers there. Established in the spring of 1862, Camp Barker grew to hold 4,000 people at its peak. But the only known photograph of the camp comes from a day in the fall of 1862 when President Lincoln visited. The camp was on his route to the Soldier's Home, a cottage that he sometimes visited outside of D.C. to escape the pressures of the capital. The medical facility at the camp became known as Freedmen's Hospital, and as mentioned, Dr. Alexander Augusta was placed in charge in 1863. After the war in 1868, it became the teaching hospital for Howard University Medical School, as mentioned earlier. A new hospital was built in 1903, which still stands and operated as a hospital until 1875. And that year, a new modern hospital was built at the former site of Griffith Stadium, which was home to the Washington Nationals baseball team, the Homestead Grays baseball team of the Negro League, and the Washington Redskins football team. It is now called Howard University Hospital, but continues an unbroken chain of service to the freed peoples and their descendants since it first opened its doors in 1862. Now, many famous surgeons have worked at Freedman's Hospital over the years, some achieving fame there, some elsewhere. Now, there are too many great stories to cover comprehensively, so I've chosen just a few for this podcast. The first is about Dr. Daniel Hale Williams III, who was born January 18, 1856, in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. Now, his story is also intimately linked to the story of another hospital, this one in Chicago called Provident Hospital, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Dr. Williams started out in the family business as a barber, then worked as an apprentice to surgeon Dr. Henry Palmer, and completed his training at Chicago Medical College, which is now Northwestern University. He was the first African-American to graduate from that school, and after medical school, he did an internship at Mercy Hospital. Unable to obtain clinical privileges at any Chicago hospital, Dr. Williams operated in people's homes, worked as a railway surgeon to the city railway company, and was a teacher of anatomy at his alma mater. FYI, that's Latin for nurturing mother, I've always wondered. At the time, African Americans were not able to get into the city's hospitals as admitted patients nor as staff physicians. To address this, Dr. Williams opened the Provident Hospital and Training School for Nurses in May of 1891. He was appointed chief of staff, and the hospital became the first black-owned and operated medical institution in the country and the first interracial hospital in Chicago. Dr. Williams brought renown to himself and Provident Hospital on July 9, 1893, when he performed a thoracotomy, meaning to surgically open the chest cavity, to repair a stab wound to the pericardium, which is the sac that contains the heart, and the ventricle of James Cornish, who was on the receiving end of a knife blade in a bar fight. This was thought to be the first operation ever performed directly on the human heart, which was done in a small converted bedroom that served as the fledgling hospital's OR. Dr. Williams opened the chest with a wide incision, noted that the heart muscle was only slightly injured, sutured the pericardial sac, and closed the incision. Now, some sources say that this type of procedure had been done twice before, but with variable success. But he was the first to publish his work in 1897 in the medical record, so he received the fame. And of note, the patient went on to live 51 more years. In 1894, President Grover Cleveland himself has a great surgery story, which I covered in Podcast 30, Election Day Edition, Part 1, appointed William Surgeon-in-Chief of Freedman's Hospital in Washington, D.C. See, he's connected to Freedman's too. But he returned to Chicago and Provident Hospital in 1898, and later worked as a visiting professor to Mahari Medical College in Nashville and other schools and hospitals in the South, 
improving their surgical education programs, teaching for two more decades. As for Provident Hospital itself, it survived, though it struggled financially until closing its doors in 1987. But through the efforts of the community, it reopened in 1993 as Provident Hospital of Cook County. Its legacy lives on as the first black-owned and operated hospital, which directly spurred the development of 40 such hospitals in 20 states, and through the many people who trained there or received care there, as for a long time it was the only place available to the black community. Now the last interesting note, one of the Provident babies, Michelle LaVon Robinson, would go on to become the first lady of the United States, Michelle Obama. Now we'll end with Dr. Charles Drew and cover the important role he played in the development of blood banks. Born June 2nd, 1904, he had a middle-class upbringing in the Washington, D.C. neighborhood called Foggy Bottom, which, by the way, is also the name of the U.S. State Department as it moved to that area in 1947. Dr. Drew went to medical school at McGill in Montreal, Canada, and graduated second in a class of 127. He actually wanted to go to Howard University, but was denied admission as he lacked two hours of English credits. After an internship and year of internal medicine in Montreal, Drew went to Howard as an instructor in pathology and then as a surgical resident at Friedman's Hospital from 1936 to 37. Drew then earned a two-year Rockefeller Fellowship, which he used to do graduate work at Columbia University in New York. Here he worked under Dr. Alan Oldfather Whipple, and yes, he is that Whipple of the pancreatic surgery operation named after him. I'll definitely come back to him in another podcast. Whipple assigned him to the lab of Dr. John Scudder, and from 1938 to 1940, it was here that Drew did his most recognized work while also training in the surgical residency program. But there is a shadow of shameful racism on this period. Let me quote the appointment letter by Dr. Whipple for Drew, written in 1936. Quote, Provide him meal tickets and uniform. He is not to eat in the dining room with other residents. End quote. Drew's talent and abilities impressed Whipple enough that one year later, in his reappointment letter for Drew, he wrote, Quote, he had done an outstandingly good job. The residents insist that he eat in the dining room with them, end quote. Doctors Drew and Scudder worked on the problem of the short shelf life of donated blood and perfected the technique of extracting plasma from blood for transfusion, which would go on to save countless lives during World War II. For those that don't know, plasma is what's left of blood after the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets have been removed. And contains lots of important molecules that do things like help to form blood clots and fight infection. Drew would earn a Doctor of Science in Medicine degree from Columbia for his work, which was summarized in his thesis called Banked Blood, a Study in Blood Preservation. Now, Dr. Drew was put in charge of the Plasma for Britain project, started in September of 1940, with the goal of getting plasma to British physicians who were treating wounded soldiers and civilians. The project provided 14,500 pints of plasma in the short time it ran, until the British could set up their own blood bank. Now, plasma has a number of advantages over whole blood. It keeps longer without refrigeration. It won't deteriorate when agitated during transport. It can be used with any blood type. It is much less likely to transmit diseases, and it can be given intravenously, intramuscularly, or subcutaneously and in large doses. To give you an idea of how important Drew became in this program of getting blood products for the war effort, when he was requested to go to Europe to inspect the plasma program, the U.S. State Department refused to issue him a passport, stating that he was, quote, too valuable a citizen to expose himself to the rigors and dangers of the European scene at this time, end quote. In February of 1941, Drew was appointed the director of the first American Red Cross blood bank at the Presbyterian Hospital in New York, with the goal of stockpiling plasma for the U.S. war effort. This became the model for the National Volunteer Blood Donor Program of the Red Cross. 
For this work, a massive undertaking in both the technical and administrative aspects, Dr. Drew is often considered the father of the blood bank. In fact, he named his oldest daughter Bibi, as in blood bank. Now here's an odd tidbit that I found out. Drew became an expert on the Russian literature on blood banking, and even published several papers in the English literature to make this information available. Weird. Now there is unfortunately a negative ending to his involvement with the American Red Cross. Drew wanted it to end its racially discriminatory practices, which were forced upon them by the U.S. military. Now, initially, the collection of blood from black donors was forbidden, and once that was lifted, the blood had to be labeled as to racial origin, essentially creating segregation in the blood banks. It's said that, he's, that he resigned over this issue and left to become professor and chairman of surgery at Howard University. Now, being a man of integrity, Drew did not want to criticize the army during a time of war, but he did address the issue in a speech in 1944. Quote, It is fundamentally wrong for any great nation to willfully discriminate against such a large group of its people. One can say quite truthfully that on the battlefields nobody is very interested in where the plasma comes from when they are hurt. It is unfortunate that such a worthwhile and scientific bit of work should have been hampered by such stupidity. End quote. And from 1944 to 48, Dr. Drew served as the medical director at Friedman's Hospital. During this time, he focused on medical education, and amazingly, during the nine years he taught at Howard, more than half of the nation's black surgeons that were board-certified studied directly under him. In his own words, quote, The boys who we are now helping to train, I believe in time, will constitute my greatest contribution to medicine, end quote. Now, another injustice for Dr. Drew was that he was not elected to membership in the American Medical Association, which was determined by the local Washington, D.C. chapter, which did not accept black members. As well, he was not elected to fellowship in the American College of Surgeons, despite his excellent exam marks and international reputation, until after his untimely death, which I'm about to describe. On April 1st, 1950, Drew was driving a Buick Roadmaster on his way to a meeting in Tuskegee, Alabama, along with three other physicians in the car. They were involved in a one-car accident, possibly due to falling asleep at the wheel, Drew had only slept two hours the previous night, and Dr. Drew was thrown from the vehicle, which then rolled a few times before coming to a stop. The passenger survived, but Drew sustained significant traumatic injuries, to which he succumbed after attempts to save his life failed at Alamance General Hospital. For years, there was a rumor that Drew died because he was denied a blood transfusion at the segregated Southern Hospital where he was treated. Fortunately, this turned out to not be true, as the surgeons looking after him did everything they could including getting a telephone consult from Duke University, and could not give him a blood transfusion as the hospital didn't have a blood bank. But the myth was spread far and wide and was even referenced in an episode of the TV show MASH. Dr. Drew died at the young age of 45, but in his brief career he achieved much and did much to advance the acceptance of African-American physicians in the medical community. There is even a Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in Los Angeles named in his honor, as well as many schools around the U.S., and to go full circle, there is a position called the Charles R. Drew Professor of Surgery at Howard University, which, as we remember, has Friedman's as its teaching hospital. Now, these are just a few of the stories, and I hope you're inspired to learn more on your own about the brave men and women that overcame institutionalized racism to pursue their desire to become surgeons. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. March 10th is International Women's Day, so the podcast next time will focus on some pioneering female surgeons. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends 
Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.